want to preach to you today. He was there all the time. He was there. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And the earth was without form and void. And darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved on the face of the waters. There is only one beginning. John makes reference to the beginning in John chapter 1 and verse number 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. John said in John chapter 1 that everything that was created was created by Him. He said that the word of God, the logos, the logos of God that was in the beginning, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. The scripture tells us that Jesus Christ, of whom we know in his flesh he has beginning, because we know that he was born through the virgin womb of Mary. Yet he is known to us as the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. 1 John chapter 3 and verse number 16 gives us great clarity and understanding. As to how the lamb could be slain from the foundation of the world. Yet we know when he was born. Hereby perceive we the love of God. Because he laid down his life for us, we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. It's the greatest love story that's ever been told. That God created man in his image, but sin marred the image of man. The Bible tells us that man and woman together, because they are one in the sight of God, had a compromising moment in the Garden of Eden, giving concession and conversation to a serpent that had no authority and no dominion in that garden, but allowing themselves to be caught up in conversation that should have never happened, led them down a road of iniquity that caused them, in essence, to turn their back Against the creator. The God of all glory. Not only eternal God. But infinite God. Something that is eternal has a beginning but no ending. Our God is infinite because he has no beginning. And he has no ending. There is none like him. There is none above him. There is none beside him. There are none like him in the heavens above or the earth beneath. He is God Almighty. He is God all by himself. 
He is omniscient, all-knowing. He is omnipresent. He's everywhere at once. He is omniscient. He is all-powerful. He is the almighty God. And he spoke, and when he did, creation transpires. It begins to happen, and the worlds were framed. And the light was separated from the darkness and the heavens and the firmaments were separated and the earth was separated from the water and there was separation in the earth. There was a key principle that we could overlook so quickly if we're not careful in creation. The first thing I want you to notice is that in the beginning God created and darkness was there. His power and His light and His creative ability did not happen in the absence of darkness. It happened in spite of the darkness. Some of you are worried about how God could possibly move in your life and use you in your life with so much darkness. But I want to tell you that darkness has never intimidated the Almighty God. He does not create when darkness leaves. He creates in the midst of darkness. He's able. The second principle I want you to see is that in, in order for God to have creative order, there had to be separation. It was not that darkness did not abound. It was that there needed to be separation between light and darkness. But the image is drawn for us so clearly when darkness comes in in the shape of a serpent and begins to beguile is the King James word begins to beguile the woman. And the word of the Lord said that our heavenly father, who we know is a spirit in Genesis and he has no feet or legs or hands or mouth, yet he came walking in the garden in the cool of the day. In other words, he came visiting them in the garden. And when he came, he knew that men had separated themselves from his presence because there was shame in the garden. I want to tell you today that shame is one of the oldest tricks in the book. It was shame in the garden that separated man from the presence of God. And God knew when he came to visit with man that something was not right because shame was prevalent where there should have been communion. Let that sink into your spirit. Shame has one responsibility no matter how it works or how it works itself through or whatever it has to do. Shame has one responsibility. It replaces communion. It replaces intimacy. Look at what shame does in a marriage. Look at what shame did in the garden. Look at what shame does between children and their fathers. Shame separates man from intimacy. And the Lord knew when man did not want that intimate fellowship in the garden that shame had to be present. And the Lord said, why have you hid yourself from me? 
Now don't miss this principle. The way the Lord knew shame was functioning is when man didn't show up to the prayer meeting. The Lord desired intimacy with his creation. And when man didn't show up to seek his face and to touch the heart of God, he said there's got to be something else in the picture. And what's in the picture is shame. Shame causes you to hide, but hiding is not the ultimate deal here. We're not just hiding because we're shameful. We're hiding because it separates us from time with God. And shame produces an eye-opening experience that man should have never had. He said, where are you? And they said, well, we realized we were naked. We realized our flaws. We realized that we were open and exposed. We now realize things that we know you didn't want us to know about us. Now, I want you to think about this. For five days, God speaks everything there is into existence. For five days. God creates by the spoken word until the sixth day when he forms man. Creation happens by the word of God. But intimacy with God happens by touch. God reaches down in the earth and takes common dirt and moves it dirt that was spoken into existence by the word of God. It's hard to believe that the word of God is part of the fabric, fiber, and makeup of who you are. You ever wonder why when you haven't been in the word, you're beating to the cadence of a different drum? It's because the word spoke and created that earth. And then God formed man out of that earth. And every law that he put in the earth, he put in man. He put the law of sowing and reaping in man. He put the law of the earth in man. You know, it's funny, the same scientists that try to disprove God and disprove creation started running numbers and running tests on humanity and they found that every single element that's in the earth is in the human body. (laughs) It's because every trick the devil comes up with backfires on him. It's kind of incredible they're trying to disprove the creation account and that God created man from from the dust of the earth. And then they find out, look at your neighbor and tell them, you're just a glorified mud ball. (laughs) You piece of dirt. I don't even feel bad saying it right now. It's hard to believe that just with a little bit of spittle and a little bit of touch, you were one time a little mud puddle. Isn't that incredible? But look what God did. He formed that man with his touch. And he breathed on him, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And he created man and made him a living soul. And when the breath of God breathed into that man, it created a void that can only be filled by God. I don't want to stay here for too long today. I want to get to where I'm going. But I want to tell you today, church family, guest, sinner, saint, backslider, whoever you may be. That the story of humanity in the 21st century is no different than it has always been. Man 
have been corrupted and they have messed up history and they have torn things apart. And the number one reason if you take everything out, circumstances out, take it all out and bring it back, it comes together to one reason. Men have been trying to fill the void in their life with things and wealth and materials and money and all of the things that they've tried to do. And when it doesn't work, then they get lonely and they they go to drugs and to sex and to pornography and to the filth of this world and everything that they try to fit in their life as a puzzle piece. It does not fit because it is a God-sized void. They try to get men to love them the way God loves them. They try to get women to love them the way God loves them. And if that don't work, they defile their bodies and turn it over to unnatural affection. And they shoot it in their veins and they drink it in a bottle and they pop it in a pill. But when all of that wears off, they find out they're still as broken as they ever were. And I don't want this to sound hopeless. I want it, as a matter of fact, to be quite the contrary. Full of hope for you today. But I want to tell you that until you let Jesus in, you will always feel empty you will always feel hopeless and nothing will satisfy you like Jesus that's it I caught the end of an era that there were three words man that were used all the time they were used in rock music they were used in what was gonna end up becoming R&B music but I don't even really know what to say about that it sure don't sound like rhythm and blues to me anymore. It was used in pulpits and at every youth conference I went to. The three words were sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Anybody here remember that old kind of preaching? Oh, yeah. oh the devil's going to get you. He's going to get you with sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Brother Barry even said it, didn't he? <laughs> what are you going to do? This is that rock music he's got for you? Get out of here. I want to tell you whether it's sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Whether it's a broken family. A messed up opinion of a preacher. A messed up opinion of a church. It don't matter. He don't care how he gets you. He really, he could care less. He can... He can use little bitty things like you lose your job that you thought God gave you. And since you lost the job, evidently it's God's fault. Right? Now, hey, I don't want this to sound ugly right now, but I need you to stretch with me and just understand what I'm saying right now. You're late to work four times in one week and God makes you lose your job. I mean, is this unfair? I can't believe God let me lose my job. God didn't let you lose your job. Well, I was always on time to work, and I still lost my job. Quick question for you. How often did that job that you love so much come between you and your creator? Right? Now, if I said that where I spit to the sixth row, y'all might would have got with me on that. Sometimes you just got to slow down a little bit. I'm talking about a little Gerber style. How often did that thing that I love so much come between me and my creator? And it creates this vacuum of space between me and God that when he comes for communion with me, I'm not there. 
I understand in the garden. I understand in the garden that it was temptation. You know, I, I guess if we really just want to get extremely real, and this is in my daily prayer book, but if we really want to just get like authentic and real, what really caused sin in the garden was covetousness. It was a shift from the gratefulness of humanity for all that God had done for them to the one thing that God said you cannot have. Think about that. He literally says to them, it's recorded in your Bible, go pick it up and look. Of every tree in the garden thou shalt eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not. And instead of their hearts being set on the gratefulness of God... Look at what the Lord has done. Look at what the Lord has given us. Look at all the blessings of God. There is that one moment of covetousness that slips in and says, but why can't I have that too? And it begins the process of understanding it is literally impossible to have your cake and eat it too. You just can't do it. And I'm going to tell you, there comes a certain time where of transition in your life where you start understanding what happy really looks like and what you think happy really is. But I want to tell you right now that sometimes you got to pick to either be happy or be saved. If happiness means desiring things that are outside of the will of God for your life, then you can be happy or you can be saved, but you can't have both. That's why the Apostle Paul said, I have learned in whatsoever state I'm in, therewith to be content. Come on, somebody. I'm going somewhere. I just want to ask you all a question that's going to be a biblically-based question, and I don't need a public answer. I need you to answer in your heart because I'm going to help you answer it in a minute. If God is omniscient and we believe that he is in this church, we believe that according to the scripture, God knows all things. Okay? Everybody on the same page with me? Then why in the world did he come to the garden to manifest his presence that day? He already knew they were messed up. He already knew the sin had happened. And he comes down and he asks the question, where are you? He wasn't asking because he didn't know. He was asking because he was trying to figure out why. This was not a, where are you? This was a, where are you? Why? The God of the universe has done nothing but speak affirmation, confirmation, creation, And the first time that he ever asks a question, ever recorded in the scripture, the first question God asks is concerning the welfare of mankind. Understand me when I tell you today that God knew Adam and Eve were messed up before he showed up. But God has never ran away from messed up people. He was there all the time. He was there when they messed up. He was there when they committed sin. He was there when they turned their back. 
But when they were messed up, he comes showing up the cool of the day just to let them know, you may have turned your back on me, but I'm not leaving you. I'm not forsaking you. I want to tell somebody in the house of God this morning, he didn't come to you because you were perfect. He came to you because he created you and he loves you and he wants to heal you. Look, you could spend 365 days in the book of Genesis and never leave and find, I I believe this with all my heart, you'll find every single principle you need to live for God in Genesis. I mean that with all sincerity. And a lot of it, you don't even have to leave the first chapter. There is something you need to understand that God was as powerful in the beginning as he was in the church. He has never changed. He's never stopped being awesome. He's never stopped being powerful. They were singing this morning, our God is awesome. He can move mountains. And man, I couldn't help but weep and cry because I realized the awesomeness of who he is today. And he wasn't just awesome when I got better. He's been awesome when I was at my worst. He doesn't stop being awesome because I get messed up and I get cross-threaded and I get all turned inside out. He's still awesome. He's awesome. (laughs) He's awesome when I got a job. He's awesome when I got a house. He's awesome when I got a car. But his awesomeness is not measured by what I have or where I'm at. Oh, don't miss that now. Well, God's just after you for your money. Think about that, folks. I want you to think about that. I'm being serious. I don't want to be a part of church. I just want your money. Hang on just one second. He created everything that we see and everything we don't see. Do you think he's going to go bankrupt without me? Look, we've got the wrong perspective of this. Why would I bring 10% to God? I need every bit of my 100% to live. I need my offer. I can't do that. No, no, no. You're missing it. He does not need it. He wants to know, does it own you or do you own it? We're, we're, We're missing it. Does it control you or do you control it? Because he's looking at your flesh and he wants to know, does your flesh control you or do you control your flesh? Because any part of you that you can't release to me, I know it controls you. It's in Genesis. Think about that. Can't control my flesh, so I want what I can't have. Want what I can't have. Want what I can't have. And so he establishes the principle. You cannot live around the wrong trees, bear good fruit, still have communion with me, and get to hang out in my garden. Standing by my wife's bed when she was pushing and delivering three times. Vessels and capillaries standing up on her forehead and her temples. And I'm standing there thinking, oh, that crazy woman should have left that fruit alone. (laughs) 
outside the other day putting the roof on. And oh my word, it was so hot. I'm telling you, Brother Diaz, I thought about you, man. I was, it was hot about three or four weeks ago. I was out there and I started to complain. I started to say, Lord, it is so hot out here. And then I thought, in about four weeks, I'm going to wish it'd be hot. But you, you, church family, understand, Pastor, when I tell you, there is something so powerful about contentment. Just being satisfied with the goodness of the Lord. You can't measure his goodness by an earthly measurement. Okay, let, let me explain this to you. I'm, I'm going to get to my sermon. But God is just as good when I make my first million as he was when I made my first 100. You, you understand what I'm saying? His goodness does not change because my work ethic changes. He's not better because I have more. He's as good as he's always been. And I understand, that, I understand the idea we say he gets sweeter as the days go by. That's true, but he just gets sweeter to me. He's as sweet as he's ever going to be. He's as powerful as he's ever going to be. The only thing that changes in him, the Bible said, there is no shadow of turning. There is no variableness in him. He does not change. He doesn't get better. He doesn't get more powerful. He doesn't get sweeter. He gets sweeter to me. He becomes more powerful to me. But he's as good as he's ever been. But his goodness is more recognized in my life when I realize the fact that he is not good to me because I've been good to him. He is good to me because he's good. <laughs> he's, he's good because he is. Look, we try to measure God in an interesting way. Now, this is going to make some of you squeeze up on the pew. For I understand that. God... Is not a man. God is not a woman. God does. He's not a human being. He's he's never worked a job. He, He doesn't sleep. He's God. What I'm saying is we call him he. We know he robed himself in flesh and became a man. We understand that. But God, God's not a he. He's not a she. He's not an it. He's God. He just, he just is. And what he's always been, he always will be. And the scripture tries to define him by saying God is spirit. The only way you can describe him is to just say, well, I, I don't know where he comes from. I don't know where he goes. Jesus said it himself. The wind bloweth where it listeth. He's speaking about the Spirit of God. I mean, it just it just is. It's like there was darkness, but he was there. There was light, and he was there, and there was creation, and he was just there. He spoke it, and it happened. So I'm saying to you, understand me. I'm not trying to confuse you, but I want you to understand. Before you ever had trouble, he was there. Before you ever messed up, he was there. 
before the before you ever got to this mountain you're at right now he was there he's always been there he was there before the mountains were formed before the earth was formed before the water was formed he was there all the time and so he asked the question he says well where are you the only way I know how to fix this is that if I'm going to redeem you as my sons, I have to come to you as a son. Because he could not redeem what he was not like. But understand, he'd never, he never sinned. But he took on sin. You understand you understand what? He's been trying to tell me all week how much he loves me, Sister Carol, and I just can't get it. I didn't do anything to deserve this at all. He just loved me because he does. This is not based on your mom and your dad or where they were or how perfect they were or how imperfect they were or how messed up or if, if you've got alcoholics in your family and your mother was a prostitute and you're all messed up. Hey, look, I'm sorry, man. That's a tough way to go. But understand, his goodness is not measured by what you've been through. He's really that good. I love you, I love you, I love you. When you're messed up, I'm going to come to you. When you're messed up, I'm going to be there. There will never be a time in creation, from creation until now that men can turn around and say, we believe that during this period there was absence from God. Oh, yes, there is, Pastor. There's 400 years of history that's just quiet. No, there's 400 years of biblical history that's quiet. But all you have to do is Read and understand, and you're going to find out, like that song we sing right now, even when I don't see it, <laughs> he's working. Even when I don't feel it, you're working. Can I tell you right now that just because Malachi closed the book and we don't hear another word until Matthew for 400 years of silence, can I tell you, it doesn't mean he never stopped working. It doesn't mean he ever quit being God. It doesn't mean he ever stopped being powerful. There were men for 400 years that at some point in their life they encountered a power that they could not explain. And they said, surely there is no other way than to explain the love of my Creator. Abraham, the father of the faithful, his father Terah was, we understand according to history and scripture that his father was a dealer of idols. That's what he did. You've heard me preach about this before. Terah was an idol maker. And so the Bible leads us to understand that the Lord comes to Abram and says, come out of Ur, of the Chaldees, come out. And I'm going to take you somewhere else. He doesn't tell him where. He just says, I'm going to take you somewhere else. But the story is that, and I, I want to hurry through this because I preach, but the story is that Abraham's father, Abram's father, was gone from the, the, the idol store one day. He owned a shop where he made the idols and people came to buy them. They delivered them their homes. The story is very quickly, his father was out of the shop. That when he came back, Abram had broken all of the idols and they were laying everywhere, all, all, over, all over the floor. And his father said to him, Abram, why would you do this? Why would you tear all these idols up? Why did you do this? And he said, Father, I didn't do it. That idol did it. 
At which point Terah looks at Abram and says, son, you know better. That idol does not have the power to do this. To which he responds, then why would you make them and sell them to people as gods that have power? You understand what I'm saying to you? Abram's father was messed up. Abram had seasons in his life that he was messed up. He had questions and wonder. But when Abram took a long walk after he had been impatient, after all of these things, gone into Hagar and, and has a son out of wedlock, it was a terrible thing. He got impatient and Ishmael was born. It was a bad thing, but God made him a mighty nation. But understand this, Abram was messed up. And when the promise finally came, the Lord said, I want you to bring him to the mountain. Three days. Three days he walks. Why didn't God just let him take him out in the front yard? I want to tell you why. Because sometimes you got to have some space between the commandment and the fulfillment. Because God wants you to think it through really, really good and be sure you're as sold out as you say you are. I don't know why God don't answer right when I pray. But boy, I'm sure glad he hadn't answered some of my prayers, aren't you? And he makes his way three days. Three days. And then he faces some, some very difficult questions. When Isaac looks at him, and Isaac is not a little boy. I know that's the picture we get from the scripture, but Isaac is a full-grown man with understanding and wisdom. And he looks at his father, and he says, Father, I see the fire in the wood. Where is the lamb? And he makes this statement that is so powerful and prophetic. He says, God shall provide himself a lamb. He does not say God will provide a lamb for himself. God shall provide himself. Oh, well, yeah, that promise was fulfilled when they got up on the mountain. Oh, was that a lamb in the thicket? You know why there was a ram in the thicket? Because that wasn't the lamb of provision. He walks up the mountain in probably the most dark moment of grief in his life. When he takes the promise that God gave him and he has to make that boy lay down on the altar. And he raises his hand with a dagger and as he starts to stab that boy, there is a hand, Bishop, that reaches down and grabs him by the hand. He says, I was here all the time. Oh, God, I feel him here. He wasn't just there when the dagger started falling. He was there for three days. He was there in the walk up the mountain. He was there when they were building the altar. But the answer did not come until Abram was as far as he could go. And when the dagger started its way down, the Lord sends an angel and said, Take him by the hand and let him know I've been here all the time. I feel like telling somebody today, you may feel like you've gone as far as you can go and God still hasn't answered. But you're going to find out by the time it's over, he's been there all the time. He never has left you. He never has forsaken you. He's there. 
Pastor, I'm not getting the report I'd like to have. I'm not getting the answer I want. I haven't got the call back I want. But he's there, and he will be there. He will always be there. His presence cannot be measured by the answer in which you receive. Abram comes to the understanding that although God stops the dagger by the hand of the angel and his presence is manifested in the earth, it's there that he realizes God didn't just show up when I was finished. He's been there all the time. Now, There's a little virgin girl, which the angel of the Lord comes to her and says, you're going to have a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sin. But Isaiah said, this same one that talked about In 53, him being wounded for our transgression and bruised for our iniquity. The Lord showed him that there was a son that was coming. Nine and six. Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And his name shall be called. Somebody help me right now. Wonderful. Counselor. Mighty God. The everlasting Father. And the Prince of Peace. The angel said, you're getting ready to bear a son. But the thing that you need to understand is Jesus doesn't just show up in the earth as a man and be like, oh, okay, well, there he is. The second person has finally arrived. Oh, no, no. He was there. All the time. From the foundation of the world, when men made mistakes, he did not send somebody else to fix what we had broken. He robed himself in flesh. He dwelt among us. But Calvary was not the first time that he showed up. He was there on the mountain with Abram. He was there in the fiery furnace with the three Hebrew boys. He was there in the lion's den with Daniel. You understand what I'm saying to you today? He was there with Stephen. He was there with Saul turned to Paul. He was there with David in the meadow and he was with David when he slew the giant. He was with David when he ran from Saul, and he was with David in the cave of Adullam. He was with David everywhere he went. I'm telling you right now, he doesn't just show up when it's time for a victor to receive a crown. When he showed up, they thought he was coming to restore Israel. And he said, I'm coming to restore the world. I'm coming to restore the glory. I'm coming to restore that which was lost. 
The principle I need you to understand today is you may have just showed up to church today. You may have just came to church today because you thought it was a good thing to do. But you showing up to church is not what lets you know that he's finally been there. I want you to know before you ever darken the doors of a church, before you ever messed up your life, before you ever committed a sin, before you ever said your first curse word, he was there. talking to that person today that's had the taste of steel in your mouth and your finger on the trigger. I'm talking to that person that's had the razor blade on your wrist. Talking to that person that's been through the most unimaginable things in your life. People have hurt you, defamed your character, assassinated your goodness. He was there. Then why did why didn't he just stop it, Pastor? Why does he let bad things happen to good people? You know, I'm gonna tell you something. That's a question that people have got to get out of their vocabulary. God does not let bad things happen to good people. When bad people do bad things, it doesn't make him a bad God. You're confusing two different worlds. He has never stopped men from making their choices and making their decisions and doing what they're going to do. But one thing is for certain. Whenever men are through being foolish and they do crazy things, If they will but stop and recognize the presence of a great God that never stopped being great. Several years ago, and I'm closing, I received a phone call. But there was a man in the hospital. He is a very bad man. He had done a lot of terrible things. Had hurt a lot of people. Even children. And someone asked me, they said, will you go pray for this person? And the first thing I wanted to say was absolutely not. I'm not going to go pray for that person. But I didn't. I said, sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'll be happy to come meet your family. And I went, and I walked in the room. This individual was in a lot of pain. And I wanted to be quick to judge. But I felt that still small voice of the Holy Ghost that just rested on me and said, you let me do my job. And you do your job. And you show my love and my mercy and my kindness. And when I stepped up to that human being's bed that hadn't been so human, I rested my hand on them and began to pray. And I said, Lord, I'm asking you to let your mercy settle in this room. 
I didn't want to pray for mercy. But I'm going to tell you something today, church. If deserving mercy had anything to do with it, I wouldn't be here right now. I've asked the Lord to meet us in this room today. I've been in the house of God this week seeking the Lord for this moment right here. And I'm telling you that the only thing standing between you and a touch from God in your heart and your life today is you coming to the understanding that you're never going to get good enough for His mercy. But He's been there all the time. You can't clean your life up enough and be good enough to deserve it. The good thing is He gave it to us when we didn't deserve it. And he's reaching in this house today. I don't want this to be awkward. I don't want this to feel crazy or whatever. But some of you have been sitting in your seat battling back and forth. I don't know about this. I don't know if I should go. I don't know what I should do. I'm going to tell you something. As we stand to our feet this morning, I've got to believe that there's somebody in this house that truly understands how good God has been to you. You can't testify for anybody else, but you're thankful for his mercy in your life. And if for no other reason today, I'm going to ask for you to come to these altars to return thanks to the living God for his goodness and his kindness to you. If you love him today and you're thankful for his mercy, would you just come forward today and tell him thank you? And if you don't really understand his mercy, let me just tell you today, you don't have to be in the house of God, but the Lord gave you enough strength in your body to be here. You don't have to feel overwhelmed. You don't have to feel any kind of uncomfortable right now. I just want you to come and I just want you to say, Lord, thank you for your mercy. Thank you for giving me another day. Thank you, Lord, for allowing me to be in your house today. I believe there's something greater for my life than where I've been. I believe there's something greater for my life than what I've been through. Come on, would you just give in to his patience and his loving kindness today? Would you do that?